And uh, as we get started here, will you please bow your heads? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are humbled in your presence. We acknowledge, Father, that you have a plan for us. And quite frankly, Father, we have seen that plan and we have decided to go with our own. Each and every day, we decide where our own footsteps should go. Each and every day, we pile things into our schedule. Each and every day, we say, God, unless I'm in trouble, go ahead and help somebody else. And we try to make this, we make this life much harder than it has to be. And for that, we are sorry. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our ears this morning and that as we hear your word of rebuke, we would take it and take it well. Lord, also that our hearts would be ready to have implanted in it your grace, an encouragement to know that you are God and you will absolutely provide. This we pray in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen. Breathing room. I mentioned last week, either you find breathing room or you will be living in the emergency room. You will absolutely be living there if you do not find margin. God will make sure of it, I, I have no doubt. And if you are so bold, if you are so narcissistic, if you are so, so into yourself that you say, I don't care what God has to say, I'm gonna do it my way, that's fine but you will pay the consequences, I have no doubt. Breathing room. Breathing room is, it's a good place to be. Breathing room is what allows us to sit back and enjoy. You see, when we're breathless, that's like climbing a flight of stairs, right? You get to the top and you're, I just can't do another. But you know what breathing room is? It's getting to the top of the stairs and going, bring it on. I can do five more flights. Breathless is red ink in the negative, in the hole. Breathing room is black ink. You're to the good. Breathless is getting to the end of the month and you say, I've got three bills to pay and enough money to pay for one. Which do I pay? Breathing room is getting to the end of the month and you go, look how God has blessed us. Look how much we have to give. Breathless is moving from one activity to the next. Thinking, I got it all scheduled out. I'm a planner. I went through the course and I know how to do it. I can squeeze in seven, maybe nine things today. And being breathless is getting to the third one five minutes late having them ruin your schedule by making you 10 minutes late to number four. By getting to number four and finishing a little bit early to catch up and make up some time, and yet you find out there's another cone zone in which to drive through that you hadn't expected. Potholes, really? They're gonna fix potholes today? And now you're 15 minutes late, and you're trying to move on to number five, and then you're trying to get to number six, and by the end of the day, you still haven't finished all of the errands. You still haven't gotten accomplished all that you set out to. And even though you piled on way too much, you get to the end of the day feeling as if you're a failure because you didn't remember to put the vegetables 
on the table. Breathless is having to carry something that is way heavier than you can handle. And breathing room is having a friend say, let me do it for you. What is wrong with us? What lies have we believed that tells us that we should be doing more and more and more? What is it that Satan, sitting on our shoulder, if that's how you picture him, or whispering through your ear, or whether it's a boss, right, telling you, nope, in order to succeed here, you've got to keep on going. We want to see you here more and more hours. It doesn't matter how many hours you work, just get the job done and you'll be rewarded. And so we believe the lie. And unfortunately, what begins to happen is we pile on more and more and more, and our schedules become thicker and longer and more unmanageable. And we think, ah, I just got to get it under control. And so what we cut out are things that the world calls superfluous, unnecessary, unwanted. It's what the world says, those things aren't important. Worship, taking a rest, which you're lazy if you take a rest. A nap during the day? Oh, heaven forbid. But I'm exhausted. I don't know how I can go on any further. Read your Bible? That's why you go to church on Sunday. Let the pastor read the Bible. Pray? Are you kidding me? Pray? Who's got time to pray? Spend time with family? I'll catch up to them when they're a little bit older. I mean, right now, all they're doing is just sitting there. Well, they can barely even sit up on their own. I mean, I got to sit behind them to keep the baby from toppling over like a little weeble wobble. I mean, what do they give me? And so we fill our lives and we fill our schedules and we believe the lie. If you just work a little bit more, you'll have a little bit more. If you just work a little bit longer, you'll get further ahead. And what happens is, is our bodies have been screaming at us. Our bodies, the bodies that God made, that he knit together so wonderfully and perfectly in our mother's womb. The body that God said, I tell you what, I know these humans, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to give them pain receptors. And I'm going to allow pain in their life so that they'll do what? They'll stop or turn, go the other direction, but don't keep doing what they've been doing. And sure enough, we as human beings see the hot stove. We're enamored with the heat that comes off of it. We see how it cooks eggs or noodles or chicken. And we go, gosh, I, I don't understand the process. I should probably be better informed. I'm not quite sure as to what is happening here. And so I know I shall touch said place. Our parents said to us very wisely, I wouldn't do that if I were you. But why? 
I'm a human being. I deserve to know all things. I shall therefore touch said stove that you said not to touch. I wouldn't do that, mother says. And child touches the stove anyway. And the parent goes, are you kidding me? And the child says, I wouldn't do that again if I were you. And some children learn the first time. And some children don't. And it amazes me. They stick their hand up again. Sometimes even looking over going, <laughs> smirking right at you. And you say, the devil is in you. It's the only explanation of how my child that I have reared and taught right from wrong would disobey me. Pain. Pain. There's a lot of pain. You know, pains in the past were about childbirth and a child maybe dying, maybe a mother dying in childbirth. Children crippled by polio. It was a real pain, right? I mean, people were concerned about those kinds of things or other diseases. Yeah, farmers were worried about tuberculosis and other kinds of things. I mean, when we were an agrarian society with all of the farmers in the world, they were seriously concerned about whether or not they'd be able to take cattle to market, whether there would be food. Just within the last 60, 70, 80 years, we had most of the United States as an agrarian economy. And they were concerned about crops. Yeah, we had our share, right? I, I grew up in Oklahoma with the Dust Bowl days, and absolutely, I mean, the wheat was gone, the, the beans were gone. And people seriously thought, man, we might not live. Then progress happened. So our pains today are a little bit different. Physical pains, to be sure. Financial pains, right? I mean, it's a little difficult to figure out whether to pull your money out of the market or leave it in the market or move it over to futures or, you know, all these different things are going on. It creates financial pain. I mean, there's genuine stress. You look at a financial planner, right? I mean, holy, I hope you pray for them. Emotional pain. You know, psychologists and sociologists talk about the number and the increase of the hours that they spend in counseling with people with emotional, severe pain, loss, and shame. Relational pain has gone through the roof. When we see the degradation of the family, right? When we see divorce rates steadily increase, when we see um, pregnancy outside of marriage increase and, and people continue to try to live their life in such a way that, that ignores the family, we get relational pain. And, and we're, not, we're not just talking in families. I mean, look at the amount of pain that's caused in workplaces, right? Well, we're all just supposed to get along. And it doesn't happen. 
Pain with neighbors, right? We've got HOAs that are going to fix everything because, well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll make sure that the RV isn't parked out front or the thing, or the grass gets cut. And we, you know, we have these good intentions so that our, so that our, our house, you know, gets up in value. But what it really does is going, well, the HOA Nazis coming around. Here's the point, and I mentioned it earlier. Pain gets our attention. God allows that. Do you understand that pain is meant to have us turn and go the other way? But do you understand that with no breathing room, what begins to happen is we become desensitized to pain. When there is no pause in our life, it's just constant pain. Ask somebody that uh, has terminal cancer or terminal uh, pain, fibromyalgia or, or some of these other diseases, and you just say, are you in pain? And, and after a while they go, I'm always in pain. I mean, is it worse today than it was yesterday? And they go, it's all bad. You, they don't have a bad or worse. It's just all bad. And we begin to realize that it's the same way with us. Without breathing room, without any margin, with no space, with no time at all, what begins to happen is that we become desensitized to the pain and we just experience pain. And we don't do anything about it. Or do we? Do we take a pill? Or three or four? Or how about one drink that leads to three or six? Do we shoot it up, snort it up, or smoke it up? But we get rid of the pain. We don't fix it. But we attempt to get rid of the pain. And what we realize is, through all of this, it's a self-induced pain. This is not what God had in store. This is not in any way, shape, or form what God intended. That's my next slide. You see, families feel drawn and quartered. They're overloaded. Wage earners are overworked. Teachers are overstressed. Farmers extended. Mothers of young children are overwhelmed. Notice that everything is over. You know, we expect to be, we expect to be stressed but we're hyper-stressed, we're over-stressed. Stress is meant to challenge us and to push us and to learn, but we're beyond that, it's created so much pain. And it is this life to which God speaks. It is this life of pain that God says, hello, yeah, uh, you, my creation, yeah, yeah, you, you've gone, <laughs> you've gone too far. <laughs> Come on back. Come on back, would you? No, 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 quit, quit running it on your own. <laughs> you can't tell you ruined that. Come on back. <laughs> I mean, I've told you, you've seen this in scripture before, and many of you have heard this throughout, you know, history, but, but you have a tendency to run away. I, I bring you back, I show you what you did wrong. You guys go, oh, you're right. And then things are good for like a half generation. Come on back. Pain. Next slide. 
was reading a book this week given to me by one of our elders. I was explaining to him in our elders meeting last week the sermon where I was going. He goes, you know, I read a book last year that was printed in the early 80s about margin. Maybe you want to look at it. And I'd, I'd seen reference to it online and everything, so I, I gave it a quick glance this week. And, and I'm just giving you a couple of little snapshots in here. He, he recognized about four or five different pains in society. I'm just going to show you three. And I thought, man, God is so wise. He is so wise because throughout his word, and, and unless you're in his word, you won't recognize where I'm going to go with these topics. But for those of you that are in the word regularly, you're going to go, oh, I'm going to wrap it up. For those of you that are going, yeah, I got no clue. I, I will wrap it up. I'm going to give you the answer at the end. But I want you to know, if you'd open God's word on a daily basis, if you'd put him first, if you'd seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you'd get this. And so the pain of progress our notion in the United States of progress, right? It's a lie. Oh, no, we progress. Don't, don't get me wrong. We just look at the history books and we realize that we are much better off now than we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. As far as if we measure by technology, if we measure by the fact that we have less disease, right, killing us. If we measure by the fact that we've got lights, instead of candles, right? I mean, there, there's progress, and, and yay God. Thank you for putting it in the heart of man that when somebody was saying, you know what, I'd rather just walk over to the wall and flip a switch and be able to see than to try to find the matches, the candle, realize that the candle is burnt down, go find another candle. Oh, wait a minute, we don't have any candles. Well, we gotta melt some uh, paraffin wax, and we gotta make a candle, and then we gotta have, by then you're going, man, it'd just be easier to walk over to the wall and flip a switch. I mean, I'm thankful for that. As my best friend, uh, Paul Geeky says, oh, that God would put it in the heart of man to make a machine that would dispense chili and cheese. <laughs> yeah, progress. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's a lie when it tells us that you're no good unless you're progressing. And the world only measures progress by, uh, by a couple of things. Finances, prestige, power. That's how the world measures it. And when the world continues to keep measuring that way, we will always fail. And if we don't fail because we're really good and our parents brought us up to progress, then we try harder and harder and harder. And gosh darn it, we're going to get better. The problem is, is we don't ever, we don't ever measure by social, emotional, or spiritual things. I mean, really, when was the last time that somebody said, you know what, I'm just, I'm kinder. You've progressed. No, think about it. Think how your family would celebrate. Well, dad's not as hacked off as he usually is. Awesome! But we devalue it. We devalue love and intimacy. We devalue mercy and second chances. We don't look at any of those things as progress, and yet it's, the, it's in the base of a human heart. 
We just keep believing the lie that to progress means money and technology and education is the way to go. And again, I'm not against any of those things, and I don't think God is against them. It's that we only use that as a definition, and that's not what God defines progress as. He says, are you walking with me daily? Do you love me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Do you know my precepts, my laws, and my decrees, and do you follow them? This is progress. Progress, the pain, sorry, the pain of stress, right? Stress, normally, stress is not a bad thing. Again, we kind of talked about this briefly. Stress is, is a gift from God. It creates an ability to change and learn stressors, okay? Here's the problem is that, uh, and, and it's meant to help us change. The problem is we get into hyperstress, Hyperstress describes the condition whereby the system is stimulated too often for too long. Go ahead and raise your hand if you are currently in the state of hyperstress. Yeah? Yeah? It, it causes breathlessness. A weight on your chest and in your shoulders. It causes lower back pain and upper back pain. It causes joints to ache. It causes high blood pressure. It causes heart rates to skyrocket. And you may be good for a little while, but hyperstress leads to emergency rooms instead of breathing room. And this, my friends, is not God's intent. The pain of overload. This is when you exceed thresholds. This is when you are maxed out. It is when you can do nothing else. It's when you quit learning to say no and you just keep saying yes. So let me explain it to you because this was kind of new for me and maybe I just wasn't paying attention in science class, earth science. I'm sure this is the class it was in. The clouds can only hold so much before eventually either the temperature change or there's just too many uh, water molecules and saturation, they get saturated, can hold nothing else. And then all of a sudden, precipitation comes. It releases, it has to come out. So those, of, how many of you are criers under stress? Yeah, you just, it builds and builds and builds and then all of a sudden, right? I don't know why I'm crying, I'm just stressed, right? Okay, Mark does it almost every week in the <laughs> staff meeting. He says, leave me alone. <sighs> okay, he says, I got a good cry. Now we're good. We're, it's out, right? You see what hyperstress does. Hyperstress, we become oversaturated, stimuli. In reality, what happens is we blow. We yell at the people that we're closest to. We're sarcastic with them. And we, we, well, we make decisions we shouldn't make. And it costs us dearly, friends. It costs us relationships. It costs us promotions. It costs us jobs. It costs us time. And who's at fault? I am. I'm responsible 
for believing the lies of progress. I'm responsible for the stressors in my life and not handling them well. I'm responsible for being overloaded because I won't say no. I believe the lies. And so if we believe the lies, there's got to be something else to do, right? There's got to be. Slide. Psalm 90. For those of you that have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. I still keep up reading uh, three psalms a day. It takes me about 50, a little over 50 days uh, to get through the book of Psalms. So in a given year, about seven times. Every time I come back around to Psalm 90, it reorients me. So about every 50 days, I, I go, oh, that's right, it's not my schedule, it's God's. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations, verse 1 says. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So let me just point this out. The reason we're looking at Psalm 90 is because we've messed up our schedules. We've messed up everything else. And what needs to happen is a reorienting with God's holy word. And Psalm 90 does it right here in verse 1. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. Before the mountains were born or brought forth, you were everlasting to everlasting. You know what the psalmist is saying? God, <laughs> you're God. I'm not. And neither are you. What does it mean that you're not God? It means you don't get to dictate what happens in your day. And if you don't get to dictate it, then you don't get to be upset about it when it doesn't run your way. That's right, you're not God. You are absolutely not the dictator of your life. Verse three, you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. And you know what? You're in control of when I die. Let me say this very clearly. According to God's word, you don't get to pick when you die. You see, you don't know the time. You don't know the place. You don't know the mechanism. This morning, 7.45, getting ready to start our 8 o'clock service, phone call. One of our members' sons was running this morning in Denver, was hit and struck, killed by a car. His wife is going to grieve. His mother and father and his brothers, his two brothers, are going to grieve today. Because that's not the news they expected when the police called at 7.30. And God's in control of that. And that may not seem fair, it may not seem right, but I want you to understand, quit trying to control the day you die. I'm not saying don't work out and don't be healthy. God wants us to take care of our bodies. These are the temples that God has created. And we are to take care of this temple so that God lives in an awesome temple that he created and that we help maintain. But you're not in control of the day you die. God's in control. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You've heard people say, right, well, to God, right? A thousand of our years is like a day to him. You know, he makes it even shorter. It's the last half or like a watch in the night. The watch is three hours long. 
a thousand of our years is like, well, you know, three hours to God. We're not in control. We didn't set the time. We don't order the clock. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass in the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening it is dry and withered. Is it any wonder we get up in the morning feeling great and refreshed, and by the end of the day we feel spent and tired? <laughs> huh, we're like the grass. <laughs> that's God's little bit of humor, at least that's how I read it, of him going, you think you're better than the grass? <laughs> no! Jesus even says it in Matthew chapter 6, right? What, you think you're better than the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the fire? This is the psalmist going, what, you, you think you shouldn't be tired by the end of the day just like the grass is? Verse 7, we're consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Nothing that happens on this earth, is there anything that God doesn't know about, including your sin? All our days pass away with wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Right? You ask a five-year-old, life pretty good? Yeah. How long are you going to live? Forever. You ask a 50-year-old, how's life? Oh, things are a little tight, a little sore. You gonna live forever? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> right? I mean, in 45 years, that usually changes. Verse 11, who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. And so, Lord, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What does it mean to to set our days, to number them aright? What it means is live today. To number them aright says, you know what? I had yesterday and I have right now, but I'm not promised tomorrow, so that's not a part of the equation. So I don't even have to worry about tomorrow. I've got today to live. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm alive for you today. And the other person says, no, I'm alive for you today. And now start arguing because it's so pleased, no, right? But do you see how almost to a T, every single one of you got a smile on your face when you realized you were placed on this earth and you realized, I have importance. I'm here for you today. I can't speak to tomorrow. I don't know what'll happen tomorrow. What I know is that by aligning your day today in the Lord, it will be God-pleasing. 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You mean even in the midst of junk that happens, even in the midst of challenge? Yep, I want to have joy. I want to know that that is exactly where I'm supposed to be, God, filled with your joy. And 17, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. May he establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of of our hands. You don't get to say, this is what I'm going to do today. God does. Now, how do we discern that? 
Well, has he given you an ability to do your job well? Great, do your job well. Has he just simply given you a job so it can pay the bills? Then pay the bills. Well, but how am I supposed to act? The way you're supposed to act is you're thankful for the job that you have, whether it's in your wheelhouse or whether it's simply paying the bills. You see, God gets the honor, the glory, and the credit. Until at such time, he says, I've got something else for you. I'm going to move you along. Are you sure, God? Yep. All right. Here we go. So what are these next steps? It begins with confession. Quit trying to run your life. God, I'm sorry. I've messed it up. Secondly, that we reorient and redefine success, that we redefine progress, that we redefine these things that the world has placed on us, and I say unfairly, and we've believed them, but that we reorient and we say, you know what, I love you more often, and I forgive you and actually do it more often, and that I'm actually filled with mercy and peace more often, and that I find myself reading God's word more often. And more often than not, I find myself listening to God's holy word, either proclaimed or sung, that more often my children don't fear my hand, that more often my spouse looks forward to my return home. That we begin to measure progress with the softening of our heart. And I believe that that contentment will come, God says, joy, joy for each day. You see, joy looks cancer in the face and says, I don't care, I'm alive today. Joy looks at the pain and the stigma and the shame of divorce, and joy says, God's got other things planned and in store for me. Trust him. And the simplicity that comes with your schedule. I, I learned this a couple of years ago. I was challenged by a sheet of paper that just told me to simplify things. It said basically look at your past year, write down everything that you accomplished or that was set before you. Just simply make the list. Here, here it is. It, it takes about a day. It's a long process because you, you get your calendar out and you ask your, your, your spouse and you ask your coworkers to help you list all these things out. And you just simply go all the way through. And then you do a little math. I mean, if you need your calculator or your phone out or take your shoes off, whatever it takes, okay? You got to do a little math. You got to count how many things are on that list. And then you divide by three. And everything that fits in the bottom third, you draw a line above it. And when you look at the list, it scares you. Okay, so, so you list all those things down. Sorry, I forgot one important step. You order them. You say, this was the most successful thing, and I did this, but it didn't really have a big payoff. Okay, so you kind of rank order them from best, most accomplished, most joy, whatever, all the way down to the last thing. And you just simply eliminate the bottom third. And there's good stuff in the bottom third. I mean, there'll probably even be a pet project in the bottom third. But if you're going to be ruthless about being simple so that there's breathing room, you got to have time. Just in the last two weeks, I've taken probably 12 hours to work on the sermon. That's why we're still here at 1110. But I had time. I mean, I've had time. 
And it's pure joy to read and to share and, and, to, and to help people reorient towards God, to look at his word, to pray, to meditate. I've got time. And so, folks, that's, that's what we need to be working towards. William Wilberforce. Progress could be measured by the fear and love of God and of Christ, love, kindness, meekness toward our fellow men, indifference to the possessions and events of this life compared with our concern about eternity, self-denial and humility. Above all, measure your progress by your experience of the love of God and its exercise before men. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this congregation and the people gathered here today who have given you their time. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of hearing a little bit of law that says, you know what, we've not oriented our life correctly, we have gone our own way, I pray, Lord, that you would shower upon us grace upon grace. Lord, that you would remind us that we are forgiven mightily and that what you have in store for us is great things with breathing room. Father God, I want to lift up this morning some families that are hurting. I pray, Lord, that you would be with the McVeigh family as Larry's father, Larry Sr., is called home Friday. I pray, Lord, that you would be with Larry and Kitty Erickson who mourn the sudden death of their son while running this morning for Ryan. I pray, Lord, that you would be with his wife and his parents. Lord, for, for uh, Larry McVeigh, that you would be with his family as they mourn his loss, his brother as well. And Lord, we lift up uh, Daisy Zimmerman, the friend of Annie McCarty who died last week too. Father, in the midst of pain and suffering, we, we say, God, it seems breathless, it's, it's too much, it's weighty, and yet, God, pour out your grace to these families as they mourn, as they mourn and as they cry. But Father, remind them that the grave does not win, and that you who give breath in our lungs will raise those bodies on the last day, and that we will be joined with them and all taken to be with Jesus forever. And so, Father, we thank you for that hope of the resurrection. Lord, today we also remember, we remember 15 years ago, pain and shock and awe at buildings collapse and the death of thousands. Today, Father, may we be honored, honoring of uh, those that rush into calamity, our police and fire and EMS professionals. Father, may we love them and support them for their sacrifice. And may we never forget, Lord, that even in the midst of great tragedy and pain, you are a God that loves your people. And Father, as we depart from this place this morning, I pray that your blessing upon our families, that you would cause us to reorient our lives towards things that matter. Not that we get away or, or, or give away our education system or, or progress, but Father, that we reorient it and keep it as a blessing to you. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would love us with an everlasting love. And I thank you in advance because I know you will. In Jesus' most holy and precious name we pray. Amen.